welcome to this podcast with Kadri Lik, who works with the European Council on Foreign Relations and is a specialist on Russian, Eastern European and Baltic affairs. And I would say one of the sharpest minds on these affairs and also somebody who always manages to see things from the inside out on the different sides of the divides in European politics. Um, so we will be speaking on uh, the topic of Russia-West relations before, in and after the war in Ukraine. Uh, a very uh, large topic um, uh, and we will not cover everything, but uh, we're looking very much forward to hearing what you have to say. So the first question uh, I would like to uh, ask uh, takes us back in time. And the question, was there ever a deal to be had uh, before the invasion was launched with uh, the Putin regime? We know that there were uh, the Minsk negotiations, uh, but now uh, in in recent times somebody has said, oh, the Minsk negotiations, actually there was no earnest intent on any side to follow through Uh, on those negotiations. Uh, even on, on the German side, uh, those negotiations uh, kept going simply because that gave them gave us time, so to speak, on the Western side to, to help Ukraine defend uh, itself for a possible uh, uh, war. So what do you think, Kadri? Was there a deal to be had? Thanks, Julie, for inviting me. And you were far too kind uh, about me when introducing. So, um, yeah, maybe I should start by saying that I do not know. My understanding about Minsk agreements always was that these were a face-saving way for Russia to get out of the Donbass blunder because Invasion of Donbass didn't go according to plan, and we could see that in 2014. And many people in Russia's political elite actually learned a lesson from it and concluded that reality in Ukraine doesn't correspond to our assumptions. Now, I do not know if that included President Putin. Had he understood that his plan was not going to work, I think Minsk would have been a way for him to get out of it. Um, but if really he thought that he can have a control over a neighboring country, um, the sort of Soviet-style control without investing Soviet-style resources, military, economic and all, then I think he was mistaken all along. I mean, That is simply not possible, not just because the West denies it to them, but because Ukraine denies it, or life itself. So it really depends on on what was Putin's thinking and the intention about the Minsk agreements. If, if always he wanted to impose the sort of control on Ukraine that Ukraine could not accept, then I think they were doomed from the start. Had he been prepared to modify his aims, I think Minsk could have offered some way out. Hmm. And what do you think on, on the European side, on, on Merkel's side? Do you think there was a, a, a belief and a faith that this uh, uh, cutting a deal uh, and giving Eastern Ukraine a, 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 an 
autonomy, uh, which it in a sense would have done. Um, inside, uh, but still keep uh, Donbas and Eastern Ukraine inside uh, Ukrainian uh, territory and sovereignty. Uh, do you think um, she believed that that uh, deal could be made with uh, with Putin? Or do you think it's, it's true that it was just kind of uh, some kind of fake pro- process run from her side? That would be interesting to ask her. In, in one of his interviews after he left, uh, after she left the post, she said that it was in order to win time. Um, that surprised me a little bit because that was not my impression when I was watching German policy on, on Ukraine and Minsk. It was clear, of course, that priority in 2015 was to try to stop the war arrange a ceasefire, prevent the conflict from escalation. And and Merkel really was worried that arming Ukraine might create further escalation and everything might spill out of control. And she invested lots of energy in in, in Minsk agreements and and trying to make them uh, work. So my understanding has been that for both France and Germany, uh, that they saw it the way of offer I described, offering Russia uh, a way out. Um, Russia, of course, was maybe disappointed that in, in their view, France and Germany never put enough pressure on Ukraine to implement the agreements. And up to a point that might be true, but in the eyes of France and Germany, Ukraine was always the victim. So uh, I guess there might have been a... A small double standard, but 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 justified double standard. Hmm. Uh, and if we go even further back, because of course now we're all wondering to what extent uh, since uh, the invasion of Ukraine now in twenty uh, in twenty twenty two was so um, explicitly had an imperialistic agenda. Uh, we're wondering, you know, how how long. Uh, has this agenda been there? Has there been a plan? And should uh, the West have uh, and NATO have related differently to Putin's Russia um, way back in time? For example, the discussion if uh, Ukraine and Georgia were given a map membership uh, in NATO already in 2008, uh, and uh, there was kind of a, a protection over particularly these two countries. Would it then have, you know, put a stop to uh, Putin's imperialist plan? So when when did is there an imperialist plan? Uh, do you think it uh, could have been stopped <laughs> earlier on? I think 2008 was an important moment. Um, but in a slightly different way, I don't think MAP itself would have protected them. Maybe actually it would have made Russia to hurry uh, <clears throat> even more to intervene. But I think that was the moment when the West should have realized that Russia is ready to go to war to prevent NATO enlargement. And we should have thought seriously what to do about it. You know, do we go to war with Russia in order to defend the principle of NATO enlargement as such? We were not ready to do that. 
if we are not ready, so what, what can we do then? Can we deal with Russia? Can we somehow, I don't know, bribe Russia with something they want to bring Georgia and Ukraine in? Mm. Or what, how do we go about it? I think the disaster was that the Western position was that NATO enlargement is none of Russia's business. It's between us and the applicant countries, and we don't talk with Russia about it. I mean, it might be, in normative terms, correct position. In practical terms, it wasn't, because Russia had enough disruptive power. So I think here we made a mistake, and sometimes I think that had... Had I reached the conclusion back then that, okay, maybe we cannot enlarge NATO that way any longer, had we maybe started working on neutral status of Ukraine or something like that back back then, maybe not even calling it like that because, you know, it would have been at odds with some normative designs, uh, but there could have been a way to ensure that, okay, Ukraine doesn't enter NATO, but Russia doesn't enter Ukraine either. It's kind of better fortified <clears throat> neutral status with agreements around it, uh, also as con concerns arms control, etc. But no one at the time thought of that. Uh, everything was going in the opposite direction. Arms control agreements were collapsing and... Uh, and talking with Russia, that was done even in the 1990s when Russia was much weaker. I mean, Clinton took Russia's objections seriously and worked with them. Uh, you know, we can discuss the results, um, but there were some results at least. And in 2008, none of this was done. So I think that is the mistake. Not, you know, map or no map map. I think that's kind of secondary question in, in the big picture. And I think Putin's imperialist design, I mean, he didn't enter office with intention of going to war to Ukraine. I don't think that was the case, nor did he want to take back Crimea. He really wanted to build up a relationship with the West, but he, of course, wanted to do it in his own way, and he assumed that his goodwill on certain questions should guarantee Western goodwill <clears throat> to him also as concerns Russia's domestic matters and his disregard of democratic standards. And that, of course, never could have worked because Western system privileged democracy. Russia not being a proper democracy was bound to be an inferior member of that club that was sort of built in despite everyone's goodwill. And I guess that's from where it sort of started snowballing slowly. Mm. Putin, in his own mind, <clears throat> interpreted Western positions as evil and, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, and, and had his designs on, uh, yeah, start thinking of, started thinking of revenge and, and, and didn't, Trust the West. It's interesting to me sometimes to, I sometimes wonder what was Putin's thinking a year and a few months ago when they had these negotiations with the US. Mm. <clears throat> because actually that was the moment when the West started talking with Russia in different terms. I mean, Biden's approach was different from 
the predecessors. And I think Russia could have got a lot of what they wanted from Biden without war, fully legitimized by the West. Mm. Arms control arrangements, neutral status to Ukraine, I would argue that was on the table. The only thing that wasn't offered was dismemberment of Ukraine and annexation of territory. I mean, that would not have been signed by the West. Mm. So did he know what he could get diplomatically or did he not know? Mm. Or did he know and he prioritized other things more? I hope we live long enough to learn from the archives what was real thinking in mm. the Kremlin. Mm. So in a sense, what you're saying, which is of interest to the scholarly debate, is that there is a international dimension uh, to the development in Russia. It's not only domestic affairs, which explains the behavior of, of uh, Russia ex- uh, externally. Um, I think which so. Are, yeah. I think so. I mean, there are many people make a, um, make that argument that in order to justify authoritarian rule at home, you need aggression abroad. And it's probably true that there is some linkage between the two, but I don't think it's so absolute. I And my impression is, I might be wrong, but my impression still is that Russia has gone to proper true hot wars abroad motivated by uh, foreign policy considerations more than domestic. Although some people would argue, also inside Russia, people who follow domestic politics would say that it's all much more domestically motivated. And foreign policy analysts see foreign policy related motivations. So yet again, we do not No, but I don't think it all comes from sort of domestic considerations, desire to uh, to give power, etc. Mm. At the same time, of course, I mean, deterioration of accountability domestically has enabled the war. No question mm. about that. Mm. And then I want to go even further back since we've just <laughs> had the 20th um, anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. Uh Looking back, how important do you think that invasion was for uh, the derailing of the Russia-West relation? I think it was it was important that as that probably eroded America's standing in the world more than many other of its wars and 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 endeavors um and i think the whole post cold war era world order was was dealt a blow at the same time in in russian psyche iraq is not the most traumatic episode when when russians speak about what has affected their thinking as concerns the west Then other things are mentioned more frequently, uh, Kosovo War, then also Chechnya. Um, recently there was an article in Washington Post about how Putin was traumatized by how the West refused to understand his behavior in Beslan. That could be very true. Um, there are rumors that Putin keeps watching the death of Gaddafi, I don't know. Um but yeah I don't think Iraq is 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 the most important one no. for, for Moscow. Mm. 
If we move up to um, uh, today's war on Ukraine, to what extent do you think now that uh, uh, the Kremlin's moves in Ukraine is about the relationship with the West or with NATO? I mean, the narratives are a mix of lots of different things. Uh, so more classical uh, imperialist talk, but also, and this whole Nazi discourse, but also lots of references to the existential struggle with NATO and the West. To, to what extent do you think it is about that for, for the Kremlin? Well, I think, I guess it is existential for Putin. I mean, he has intertwined his political fate with a war so closely that for him it would really be hard to lose the war and, and stay on as a prominent politician. Um, so in that sense, for him it is existential. And he is, of course, trying to sell it as, as a war with the West. And, and with some success, I must say. I can see how Russian expert class is, is buying it. Um, they were horrified when the war started. And now, ever more, they talk about it in the Russia versus West context, I guess partly because emotionally it is much more palatable. It is nicer to think of Russia as a country that has stood up to America as opposed to a country that has invaded its smaller neighbor. But of course, I mean, there is some logic behind it as well. West supports Ukraine. So, yeah. Mm. And it's interesting, actually, to bring another dimension for China watchers. That is a proxy war between Russia, between, sorry, for China watchers, that is a proxy war between America and China. Ukraine being America's proxy, Russia being China's proxy. When Russian analysts understood that this is how it's seen from Beijing, they were also pretty shocked. Hmm. That is very interesting. <laughs> I haven't heard that uh, before. Yeah. So uh, we're moving now into, and you touched upon it um, uh, slightly into you know what's going on within uh, the Kremlin regime and the different uh, factions, so to say. Uh, and I think most of us were kind of shocked by the way the culturalists or the imperialists had had won the agenda when when the war started. Um, so could you just give us, although it's we're just guessing, I suppose, so what do you see when you look into the regime? Uh, are uh, more moderate people technocrats? Are they uh, totally mar marginalized? Is it only uh, the, the Siloviki, the war party, uh, who has any influence? Or do you think there can be a return uh, of uh, the technocrats, in a way, inside the Putin uh, regime? I do not believe. I basically, I think Putin is, Putin is the sole decision maker. I think the decision to start the war was his. It, it wasn't a collective decision. It wasn't compromise or anyone didn't force his hands. It was a decision he made 
on his own and largely in secret also from his own political elites. Mm. I mean, the foreign policy establishment was shocked, that mm. I know for a fact. Mm. They didn't expect it. For them, the full mobilization of troops was about coercive diplomacy. Yeah. Um, and I think technocrats were maybe similar. Um, in the special services and army side, of course, many people must have known, but also maybe not fully. I mean, in the early days of the war, we, we learned how also many of the uh, soldiers were given actually misleading um, instructions or misleading information about what the mission was, and and they paid for it. As to the Russian system, I don't think technocrats can come back just like that. There is some debate around it in Russia too, and people have noticed that you know, things have not happened as, as they thought. They thought that if there is a war, then the army will manage well and the economy will be the weak, weak spot of the system. What happened was the opposite. Army has had problems and economy has done surprisingly well. And it could be that some economic technocrats want to use that to argue their case, but I don't think they will succeed. You know, It's not a merit-based discussion. Um, and I don't think that Putin... He cannot go back. I mean, and many of the elites realize it, that the war might have been stupid to start, but you cannot get back to where you were in 23rd of February. And I think that is absolutely true of of Putin. So the, the impression that is solidifying is that regardless of anything, we need to go forward. We need to win it, otherwise we will perish. That notion is, is spreading. Now, if a system somehow erodes, because it's undergoing a huge stress test and personalist system is never very well equipped actually to handle multiple tasks in a stressed situation, if it starts showing cracks, then at one point, we might, there could become a moment when some economic technocrats or I don't know, people like yeah, Sobyanin or Mishustin might assume missions that are more important than those that they have now. But I think that if that ever happens, it's still a long way off. And it is if, not when, question. Mm. And I don't think that the West can too much to bring it along apart from the things we are doing already, sanctions and supporting Ukraine, I absolutely do not think that we can micromanage Russia's political system and, and help some forces mm. internally against the others. Mm. That we cannot do and mm. better not try. Mm. Yes, and that leads me to the next question, which is, <clears throat> you, you said that uh, the the kind of the notion that this is a, a an existential war for Russia and to to withstand the West uh, has some traction in the foreign policy elite. What do you think about the Russian people? Although we don't know what they think, what would you guess? What is in the course of this war their relation to the West? 
Do you think it has changed uh, and in what direction? I think a bulk of Russian population who have stayed in Russia, so I'm not talking of those hundreds and thousands who have emigrated, I think they basically support the government, most of them. Many of them think they believe the war is the war they see on TV. They don't really know the reality of the war, but even if they did, I think many of them would think, still think that this is a necessary war. Putin had no choice but to start it. I'm often reminded by one conversation I had with one Russian sociologist, and that was sometime before the war. I mean, not, neither of us thought that the war was coming. And he said that this sort of interesting mental process in Russia's public opinion that, you know, something happens, say Russia invades Georgia, West imposes sanctions, and then the public opinion decides that, you see, West is against us. West wants to hit us. Mm. Uh, and they completely forget that something happened in between that caused it. Mm. The sort of the actual start point gets diluted or people would think that, oh, well, you know, Georgia, Ukraine, that's not really important. Who cares? But it's us versus West. So any conflict very quickly in people's consciousness moves into into that level and then they all rally to the flag. And and I think that's what is largely happening now. Mm-hmm. Also, Russian sociologists tell me there is lots of questions, lots of debate, as you know, whether we can trust public opinion surveys or, or not. Um, and some with whom I have talked, they say that, yeah, you can trust them. People speak their mind because they don't feel that they are thinking anything dangerous. They agree with the Kremlin, so why wouldn't they speak? Mm. And I think that is prevailing. Mm. Of course, there are minority voices who are horrified, who understand what is happening, but they have hardly any platform. I mean, almost nothing at all, less than in Soviet era. In Soviet era, you could speak between the lines. Things could be said in in theatres. You know, there was actually a way of communicating and debating matters in the Soviet Union. Never explicit, but implicitly a lot Mm. could be said. Mm. Now, I don't think it is even... It's not the same. I think it is a lot worse. So if we take that question to the European side, and that's, of course, a very diverse uh, landscape. So I suppose you could answer from where you you sit. But in what way do you think uh, the war has changed um, public opinion on Russia and maybe Russians, not only Russia, Putin's Russia, but but Russians uh, uh, in the Baltics also, which is an area you know well? And to what extent is there, is there a divide in Europe between the political elite and uh, the population? I do not think there is a very big divide. I mean, ECFR has done some studies on uh, on public opinion, uh, but also elites, and and the latter was something I worked on. I published a paper on what European policymaking elites think of Russia, and. There was a lot more unanimity than I expected. I mean, really, Hungary was the only outsider who who saw things differently. Everyone else basically came together around the position that 
saw the war as Putin's war of choice, a crime that needs to be punished with sanctions. It was also interesting to me to see how many of the potential swing states Putin had lost already before the war. I mean, many countries who could have been fairly neutral in, 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 in some of those questions, they have actually been insulted by Russia before the war, and, and they remembered it. You know, Ireland suffered cyber attacks. Uh, Spain remembered how Josef Borrell got treated in Moscow. Uh, Greece had meddling in its affairs. So Italy, many of those, they had simply changed their mind. And I think the events during the early months of the war, when Russia just totally rebuffed any initiatives to negotiate and, and made a farce of it. I think Greece also contributed to elite disappointment and, and consolidation around the scenario of uh, arms deliveries to Ukraine. And my impression is that the public is largely on, on, on the same page, uh, though perhaps because we have been lucky. I mean, winter was not actually as hard in terms of energy deliveries and economy as it could have been. Um, I think each country is actually asking itself again and again the question, what is the best possible outcome we can have with acceptable price? And the answers to that keep changing depending on country, depending on developments in on the battlefield, you know, sometimes better outcomes seem possible, other times worse outcomes, and and domestic issues. Um, the price of, of supporting Ukraine can also go up and down domestically, depending on energy prices, depending on overall political situation, mm. etc. So um, now returning to the implications of that, uh, those uh, public opinions to the war in Ukraine. Um, because we are seeing now, of course, a terrible war of attrition, very many human lives being, being lost. And we also kind of hear, or not very loudly, uh, but reports that there is a kind of nudging of Zelensky towards thinking about negotiations and a potential compromise on the territory of uh, uh, Ukraine. So how do you think, given uh, the kind of uh, solid um, positions where actually both elite and population uh, are quite uh, clear, Uh, and behind the goal of uh, winning, so to so to speak, how do you think that will factor in? Will if there is a negotiated uh, end to the war, how will the different parties be able to sell that uh, compromise? I'm thinking if you have you know said that uh, Putin is uh, it's impossible to uh, rely on Putin. He is an imperialist. If you don't stop him. Uh, very properly, he will uh, expand across the borders. Uh, 
also into the Baltics or, you know, different such uh, scenarios. How, how easy will it be to sell uh, such a compromise with credibility uh, for the Western leadership? I think that decision will be first and foremost Ukraine's to to be made. I mean, everyone says we can it, get to that. How yeah. easy will it be for Zelensky to sell it? Yeah. But first on the on yeah. the European yeah. side. Yeah. But I think it matters that you know opinion on Ukraine has changed, in the sense that Ukraine is not seen as sort of dependency of the West, even though they are in terms of economic support and arms deliveries. But the way they have handled the war has sort of given them the voice or the West understands that this is really their responsibility and their decision. That was not necessarily the case earlier. We started by discussing Minsk agreements and sometimes I had the impression that Ukraine was looking to the West to sort of solve it for Ukraine. And they had no clear idea where they want to go with the agreement. Maybe I'm unfair, but at least from where I sat, I occasionally caught that position and I, it seemed to me that sometimes French and German diplomats were frustrated with that as, as well. Then now I think Ukraine knows where it wants to go and everyone accepts their agency. So that is a big change about Ukraine. And Ukraine will have at one point to decide how many more people are they ready to lose for mm. how much territory exactly and lose not just on the battlefield but also the immigration. The longer people stay in immigration, the less likely they are about to go back. Someone pointed out that Ukraine could end up like Bosnia. They'll be there, but all the people will be elsewhere. Mm. And actually, you know, participating in economic and even political life of, of other countries. I don't think Ukraine is anywhere near it. I mean, they they are fighting valiantly for the time being, and I think that will continue. But when Ukraine reaches that point, or if they are defeated or really get stuck on the battlefield, then they might have to start asking those questions. Now, on the Western side, I don't think anyone will feel the need to sell a compromise as a good compromise. I I think the message will be that it's bad, but that's what could be done at the moment. Um, and that would be the truth. As to Putin, though, mm, I think he could have sold almost anything as victory um, before the war and maybe even early days of the war, or maybe not. But now, actually, he has staked so much of Russia's future and its relationships on it that for him, actually, it is, I think now it would be hard to draw a line and say that this is what we wanted. I, I mean, he could do it, but I think... He, but could he do it, for example, draw the line and say, so it's Crimea and it's the four regions which Russia annexed this autumn and that was what we always wanted? He could, but even actually conquering these full four regions is going to... To be, yeah, absolutely. To take yeah. a long while. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and I think it would not last long. I mean, at one point, I guess many people in Russia would ask that, like, what? Yeah. For that, you actually sacrificed our full economy, our political room for maneuver, relationships, lives. Mm. So I I do not think that Chris would, you know, be a, it would be a Pyrrhic victory. It wouldn't be a victory no. that solidi- solidifies his mm. rule. Mm. But in what you're saying, you are in a way suggesting that it does matter still to the Kremlin uh what the people think or what kind of, yeah, whether they see it uh, as legitimate in some way or the other. Because one could also, you know, studying the Putin regime, in my eyes, it's changing the whole time. Mm-hmm. And you you could ask yourself, you know, where is the Putin regime at now? Has it become a purely repressive machine? It doesn't any longer want to take into account what people actually think and kind of play to the public opinion, which it has been doing for many years. Uh, so yeah, how would you... Are, you you are right. Uh, and I don't think that they bother with public opinion as such any longer. I mean, earlier they developed a full sophisticated witchcraft to get people to vote the way they wanted them to vote. And they really were successful. I mean, these were amazing things they could do. Um, I don't mean it as a compliment, but it was quite something. Mm. Not exportable, though. That was also interesting. None of mm. that political technology they could export to places like Ukraine or yeah. or even Belarus. But in Russia, inside Russia, it worked. I think now they don't need to bother with that any longer. I think they could happily falsify the elections. Um And I don't think many people would protest. But the one place where public opinion matters is the military. I mean, from the military, you want actually active contributions. These people need to Mm. go and fight. Mm. If they refuse to do so, then you are in deep trouble. Mm. So I, I think at least in that sense, they... They need to be able to somehow convince these poor soldiers that they need to pick up that gun and point it to Ukrainians rather than the Kremlin. Exactly. Okay, so we'll move into the future. <laughs> uh, how how solid do you think the decoupling, which everybody is talking about, uh, is between Russia and the West in In practical terms, I mean, we hear uh, that the sanctions haven't really worked the way uh, uh, the West hoped because there are lots of loopholes and people are already finding them. And there is actually quite a lot of uh, connections still going uh, between Russia and Europe and the West. Uh, and then more socially, I suppose, how how uh, how final is, is the break Uh between Russia and and the West after the war? Let's see. I think it is deepening. I think many things that have been undone cannot be uh, remade. I mean, energy relationship. Germany will not be buying gas from Russia the way they used to. That is gone. Um, Sanctions, yeah, of course there are loopholes and... uh, And Russia keeps buying Western stuff from third countries and uh, 
Um, but that is natural, and I don't think we should make too much of of that. I see the two systems moving still in their separate ways, and it could be fairly global. I I also think that with re-sanctions, the West has signaled also to some other powers what they risk if they associate closely with the West. So many other countries will be willing to keep their assets somewhere else, choose the currency that they use for reserves. So I think the sort of Western-centric financial system could could come under review. Maybe, maybe not as quickly and swiftly as Putin probably hopes. He speaks a lot about it in his speeches. But still, I, I think the peak of globalization in that sense probably has passed. And can it be returned? I do not know. For that, we need some, some developments on the ground. And what, of course, makes me sad is that also in terms of debate or information, we are, we are moving our separate ways. Um, Western scholars don't go to Russia almost at all. Russians few and and infrequently come to the West. We are we are losing touch Absolutely. with, and and that of course, I I could say it is dangerous, but um, we are in dangerous already. Mm. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, that is. That is not good. And I think for people like me and you, you know, we will need to think through our full professional life. How can we research Russia if mm. we uh, if we can't go there? Uh, to me, it matters a lot what the atmosphere I pick up uh, being on, on the location. And even information. I mean, in Germany and in Norway, I can still access... Uh, Russian information channels in Estonia, most of them are blocked. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, so that leads me in a way to the next uh, question, which is a bit, uh, which is <clears throat> probably way uh, into the future, um, but which I think it's very important to start thinking about. Uh, and I think that the, the the clean break, so to speak, which we're aiming for now, also in terms of, yes, speaking to colleagues in Russia, has uh, will give us some real uh, problems in the long run. Uh, so my question is, how do you think um, uh, that a less aggressive <laughs> and autocratic uh, Russia could come about? Uh, and what role, if any, <laughs> could uh, Europe, the West, play in such uh, a process? I do not know how it could come about. I hope it could, somehow. I That's been my own mental struggle throughout the past year. The Russia that I know... And I've been visiting Russia each year ever since 1986. And the Russia I see now is not the Russia I, I have known. And I permanently expect 
someone to step forward and say that, listen, this is a crime we should not have done. We need to somehow. These people were there when my interest in Russia first emerged, and that was probably late perestroika years. Um, I guess I'm, I'm expecting, yeah, for a new Gorbachev to emerge, or if it's too early for that, then at least, you know, some kind of more collective leadership to take over, like it was after after the death of Stalin. And I think Putin's rule, and it's not as repressive as Stalin's yet, at least, but in terms of sort of personalization, level of personalization, it is pretty mm. much the same, I think. Mm. So I would guess that if Putin left, departs from the political scene one way or another, then that would cause a shake-up that could give some chance for a different Russia to emerge. You could also... I don't believe in, I don't know, coups and, and things. I, I mean, may, you can never exclude. I mean, I, I don't see it coming, but of course... A successful coup you do not see coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what about decolonization from the inside, from the ethnic republics? or? Yeah, no, that I don't believe either. Um, I mean, all that talk about that Russia needs to collapse uh, alongside administrative borders, I think that is um, just lazy extrapolation of a collapse of the Soviet Union. I don't think that is going mm. to happen. I don't think the uh, national republics even want. No, I think you're correct. Yeah. yeah. I worked in Russia in the 1990s. That was actually the peak of separatism. But Chechnya was the only one at the time who was truly fanatical. So I don't believe in, in that. But of course, you could have some power um, sharing arrangements where regions play a bigger role. I don't know. I mean, something... Something like that could potentially happen. I don't think the West can do much at all about it, and we better not kid ourselves thinking that we can. The one thing, though, that someone would m might consider doing, but I think that someone should be maybe be Joe Biden or someone like that. Um, we should maybe articulate loudly that we actually see a future Russia being there. We don't expect that the end of Putin will be the end of Russia or loss of the war will be the end of Russia. Many people in the West argue exactly that. And that is what makes it existential for Russians. So for someone highly placed to say that, listen, you have blundered in a major way and you are engaging in a crime, but you don't need to be bound to that until the end of your days. There is a way back for Russia, even if not for Putin. And I think for Putin, there is not. Um, I think that might be a good thing. It's not something that would cause an immediate split of elites or something like that. It's not sort of a swift weapon, but it would put some accents right. Mm. Thank you very much. That actually answered what was my final question, namely, you know, is it still important for the West to try to win hearts and minds 
on the other side of the border in uh, in uh, Russia, and I think uh, your suggestion there is is really crucial uh, crucial because I think it will potentially win the hearts of minds of at least somebody on the other side. Yeah, the ones to whom our messaging can reach, and that is of course far from the bulk of population. Uh, but yes. Mm. So we will end on that. Thank you so much for coming, Kadrilik. Thank you. And for answering uh, all our questions. And then we will we'll be listening in to you from somewhere else uh, for more answers. Thanks. <laughs>